Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is the Summer Encore series. I am spending this summer going through episodes from seasons one through three and replaying some of them. Some I will do some editing on, others I won't. And today I'm kicking off with an episode from season one with Lee Martin. She was my first non-familial guest. And as you'll hear, it was definitely some some kinks worked out in that episode. I actually had recorded with her one other time before this and totally failed to get the recording recorded. <laughs> so we recorded again and I was still working out how I was going to record podcasts. So I did introductions with the guest on air and recorded with Skype and it was a whole lot different. So You'll hear some of my newbie podcasting skills in the beginning, but as we go along, I think you'll find a lot of very interesting things that we talked about. So without further ado, here is the episode in its original entirety. I am your host, Misty, and today we're re-recording with Lee Martin. Um, Lee is out of Oklahoma, and she has a background in urban forestry. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And I actually found her online a couple years ago, and I was looking for, I don't know, someone like me, someone who was into nature and plants and outdoorsy things. Um and that was kind of in the same age range as me. So, you know, how you do with commenting and blogs, you kind of make friends that way. So um, that's how we've kind of gotten to know each other. <laughs> so, and I thought you'd be a great uh, person to have on this podcast. And um, hopefully you can share some of your knowledge. So give us a little bit of uh, background about, um, I guess, what your your job is, and like your background on that aspect, but then we'll kind of talk a little bit more about how you've kind of turned that into your knitting hobby. Uh, sure. Um, well, so I, I live in central Oklahoma and I grew up in Tulsa and um, I have a degree in forestry from Oklahoma State University. And um, from there, I kind of moved to Austin for a few years and worked um, in urban forestry there for the city. And um, now I'm back in Oklahoma again, um, as I'd said. But um, my job in urban forestry, and a lot of people kind of think, well, you know, what, what exactly is the urban forest? And um, I mean, really, the explanation for that is just any any tree in an urban area is part of the urban forest. And um, urban foresters are um, kind of the people who manage those and, you know, just try to, I guess, act as stewards um, for the urban forest and their um, communities. So um, we do a lot of tree planting and tree care, a lot of um, outreach and education about proper tree care practices and the benefits of trees and and things that they do for us in our communities, Um, work with development and tree preservation and um, planting in those areas. Um, So it's kind of, it's a broad field. and urban forestry itself is, is very broad, and urban forestry is one aspect of that. But um, I kind of 
got into it, I guess, um, just always really interested in trees and really interested in plants and um, always kept house plants. I remember growing sunflowers and cherry tomatoes when I was a kid and staying outside and watering our, our shrubs and stuff during the summertime. And um, I actually <laughs> found out a couple of years ago that um, my great-grandfather, um, who came to Oklahoma from upstate New York, he had a couple of brothers who were foresters. So I guess it's kind of in my heritage a little bit, um, but that was really neat because otherwise I'm really the only only one in my family who is into this sort of thing. But um, I've just always been really fascinated by trees, and um, the more I learned, the more fascinated I became. So it's kind of, I guess, how I went down that path and, and continued to learn more and incorporate that into other aspects of my life. But. Yeah, that's really cool. And I like, I mean, did you ever think about doing, I guess, the typical forester type position? Or was it always like once you got into school, you realized you wanted to kind of jump into the, the urban part? How did that happen? Yeah. Whenever I first became familiar with forestry, it was through a friend who had a forestry degree. And um, the program that she went through was more of an outdoor recreation and type of program. And um, so forest recreation is yet another facet of forestry. And okay. um, so whenever I, you know, kind of started looking, at it, I was like, yeah, I like to be outside and I like to be around trees. So, um, you know, I want to look into that. And there happened to be a program at OSU and started looking into that. And that's what I declared as my major when I went as a freshman. So we were kind of, I mean, it's mainly, it was mainly geared toward traditional forestry at that time. Um, when I was a sophomore, they unveiled, and different concentrations and okay. so I had done an internship with the Forest Service and um, we were out doing a lot of um, timber cruising and and we did some um, biological surveys for American bearing beetle and things like that. It was really interesting yeah. and I really loved it that I had gotten into the idea of how um, urban forestry connects people to the trees and that's kind of one of the, my big passions, I guess, and, and something that I communicate through my artwork as well. Um, but that's, I guess, how I went into that instead of being in the woods. Sometimes I kind of wish that I had gone the direction of being in the woods all the time. But um, yeah, either, you know, they're both, um, they're both good career paths, I think. So, um, so you're mostly dealing with, I guess, like kind of the parks. Do you guys manage like, um, you know, trees that are in like parking lots and roadways, that kind of thing, or is it specific parks, that kind of thing? How do you, it, how is that handled? So it really varies um, by community. Um, some communities will have a forester who's based in the parks department, and that's how um, it was whenever I was in the city of Austin. And, um, you know, some communities, the forester will be in the public works department. And where I am, we are in the community image department, which is alongside the code enforcement and okay. code enforcement officers. And um, we kind of, we don't really deal much with park trees, but we do have right of way landscapes that we manage and right of areas that we plant. And we have residential planting program and tree risk and management assistance and things like that, but mainly just in the right of ways. Okay. So um, I guess in that aspect, I mean, since you're dealing with probably a lot more common trees that people are just 
planting and of kind of escapees? Do you, get, do you deal with a lot of invasive species? Um, not too much. Well, I don't know. I mean, they're definitely out there. We have some natural areas. There's an arboretum that we do manage. It's in one of the parks, and there's a um, native grass area. We're constantly going in and having to remove Bradford pears. Yeah. Ace Park elms and, you know, things like that. There are Chinese pistache out there now. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the eastern red cedar. Um, it's, yeah, it's a challenge. You kind of, I like to say, whenever I'm driving around town in the spring, you notice that Bradford pear, eastern red cedar forest type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fields that have been, um, you know, managed at some point, whether they're mowed or there's some land disturbance done and then left, you know, is left um, to kind of fill back in. And then you have those volunteer pears that just sprout up and they're very conspicuous when they start to bloom. But, um, yeah, those are our, our main ones, I guess, that we deal with. Yeah. Um, okay. That sounds cool. I mean, it sounds like it's a fun, fun job that you're, you're out and about quite a lot. Yeah. A lot of variety. So. Yeah. I'm like actually going to have to pick your brain on the American burying beetle later. So. I don't really know much about it, to be honest. It was, and that was uh, about, oh my gosh, I'm like 14 years ago. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. I, still more than I have, but. It's tied into something on my job, so um, it sounds interesting to me. So setting the uh, the traps and trying to survey for them. Yeah, it was, it was pretty gross. Well, the fermented <laughs> meat and oh goodness. Um, okay, so as a forester, how did actually you translate that into knitting, or when did you start knitting and making your installations I guess I should say well um so my mom has been a knitter for a very long time um since she was a teenager and she taught me multiple times growing up and I didn't really ever stick with it always had other things that I was trying to do um but when I was in college I kind of picked it up um and really just sort of got hooked on at that point so yeah for years kind of knitted a lot of scarves and hats and things like that and um then I guess it was, I don't know, four or so years ago, and we had been moved back here for a little while, and um, I was really just kind of needing a creative outlet and, and wanted to do something beyond just um, making wearables. I guess I wanted to communicate something, and so I kind of um, started thinking about, um, you know, these things that I observe in the environment and have observed in places that I've been and um, I guess sort of tried to build on um, the fascination that I've had um, with things such as, you know, tiny colonies of mushrooms and, and things like that. So I, you know, decided to, I guess, try my hand at making some of the forms and um, started creating these installations that is the purpose of is just, you know, if someone is walking by and they happen to glance down, you know, and it catches their eye and then they get down and start to look closer and, and see that they're not actually really looking at mushrooms. They're just looking at these tiny knitted forms um, that are installed um, in hopes that if they go outside and they, you know, 
something, you know, something else catches their eye that it might incite the same reaction and, and sort of create a, a better or a stronger awareness, I guess, of their natural surroundings. Yeah, I think that's what I think fascinates me so much and why I like your installations and um, all the tiny little fungus and lichens you've done is because so many people don't pay attention to that sort of thing. Um, they're looking for, you know, the big flower or the great view, but there's so many like little micro, you know, scenes in the forest that are just awesome. And I think create, and A, it's all tied together. I mean, the fungus supports the trees and all the other plant life. And, you know, I just, I just think it's so cool. It's <laughs> so amazing about all of it to me, just um, how tied together they are. Um, I mean, a tree that dies and returns to the forest floor is broken down by a fungi and, you know, turned to minerals in the soil. And, then the, you know, the next tree that sprouts um, absorbs them and uses them for its, its growth stages. And I don't know, that's just so fascinating to me how it's, you know, it, it all comes back together and, and nourishes the next living being. Yeah. Yeah, I like, um, especially like, talking about trees falling, um, nurse logs and how, how cool they are, how many different plants use them to, to, to grow and to start a new, start new life. It's pretty cool. Definitely. Um, so how have you been teaching yourself, um, I guess all the funguses, I mean, are you just going out and with a field guide? How did you start that? Yeah, um, I have to be honest, like most of the things that I've knitted, I have not had the opportunity to see in person. <laughs> oh, okay. I've mainly been inspired and by, you know, through research. And so I have a couple of field guides that I use um, that creating these has helped me to identify some um, whenever I'm out hiking and things like that. And so it's all kind of, I guess, a way for me to learn um, different species and, um, and I guess, just become familiar with um, those forms. And in that, I guess, I'm kind of cultivating my own connection with nature and while also trying to encourage that in other people. Now, when you've had the installations, I guess, have you had pretty good, um, I guess, reviews of people taken an interest and asked you questions and followed up or I mean if people just I mean what's the reaction been? Um I mean it's kind of the reaction that I've sought out I guess and what the people that I have talked to um they the response I suppose is kind of that of like I didn't even realize that they were knitted until I you know got up here and was really looking at them and um, which is kind of what I was looking for but um beyond that I guess that's the main response that I've gotten. Right. Okay. I was I was hoping maybe you had spurred some cool new naturalists or something. <laughs> well, I mean, that's my hope, but I don't, you know, directly I haven't been told that other than, you know, just people saying like, yeah, you know, it got me looking at this or that, but. And, right. Yeah. Whether I know about it or not, I guess, you know, that's the, definitely the goal. Yeah. And how long does it take you to, I guess, put together one of these installations? Long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, so the knitting process takes quite a while. Um, but then there's the weaving in ends of yarn and um, 
kind of installing the wire on the forms and piecing the parts together and things like that. So they're pretty time consuming um, to make. Um, the installation process is very short though. And it's actually kind of refreshing once I get to that place because I can just kind of, you know, do a stream of consciousness in a wave and setting them out before I document it. Um, but the knitting is by far the most tedious part. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I crochet, so I understand, (laughs) but I can't imagine trying to devise a pattern for fungus off the top of my head. Basically that's crazy. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to work right side of your brain. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, I say jump back to forestry. Um, I actually was meant to kind of talk a little bit more about that, and I was thinking about fungus at the same time. Um, so in uh, in forestry, I guess, what's your favorite tree? I honestly don't have a single favorite tree. Um, I have a lot of favorites from different regions. Really, I think I've, I may mainly have um, features from different trees that I like. Um White pine, eastern white pine and western white pine. I love the soft needles on them. Um, needle arrangement of western larch, um, white oak, the scale of those trees. And I remember being in West Virginia um, one October and walking down a trail and seeing white oak acorns that were um, sprouting seedlings just laying on the surface of the ground, which is incredible to me. That is cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Um, things like that. Um, the bark of persimmon trees. I like. Oh, yeah. Smoke tree. Chittam wood is one of my local um, native favorites. Um, can't can't deny loving the madrones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are nice. They're pretty amazing. Mesquite trees. I know a lot of people don't like those, but I, I really enjoyed them whenever I was living in Austin. Um, yeah, a lot of people call it, especially <laughs> people ranchers and they're trashy kind of trees to some people, I think. Yeah, that's what people say about the native cross timbers trees, too, yeah, with the, you know, the post oak and blackjack oak, and I love those as well. Oh, I love post oak. People don't like post oak? They're, they get called trash trees a lot, or scrub oak is a, I think that's mainly referring to the blackjacks, but okay. I don't know, I, I think they're really interesting, and some of them, you know, are really small, but they're really old. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, just from looking at them. But, um, when I was working in Austin, I remember um, we do plantings. There's so many interesting understory trees that we could plant there, and I miss I miss those. I wish that um, they were hardy enough to plant up here <laughs> too. But oh, like, like what what kind of trees? Um, like the Anacacho orchid trees. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Planted some golden ball lead trees. And mountain laurel is one of my favorites. It always will be. Yeah. It's pretty common down there, I know. But, um, yeah. And this is the Texas mountain laurel for everybody, not the other mountain laurel, not the rhododendron. <laughs> yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, we, we have a Texas mountain laurel in our garden, but it's not doing – it's probably going to take a long time to grow. Yeah. I um I actually bought one last year from uh, there's a plantsman out in Clinton, Oklahoma, which is kind of about an hour and fifteen minutes or so west of Oklahoma City. And um 
he had some that he had grown. I'm not sure where the seed source is from. It, typically, I think he um, will collect seeds from um, ecotypes that are, you know, kind of closer to um, the western Oklahoma region. And, right. um, and then he'll grow them and, and sell them in his nursery. So I found a Texas mountain laurel there last year <laughs> that I planted in my front yard on the south side of the house. So um, it's really protected right there. I actually have still have some perennials that have not frozen back yet. So I think it's a pretty good spot for it. But we'll see if it actually blooms this year or not. That's cool. I hope it does. We got one bloom last year. but And I know it's supposed to smell really good, but... I don't, I didn't get a good smell. They smell like, um, I don't know, really fruity. I want to say like grape candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what I've heard too. Yeah, something like that. Cool. Yeah. I'm surprised. Oh, I guess maybe not. I know those orchid trees that you're talking about. I've seen, um, up in Dallas before. Oh yeah. So I'm kind of surprised. Maybe maybe it's just too far north where you're at. I mean, if I could find one up here, I would probably buy it. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I could find one in a Dallas nursery and bring it up here. So, what's a most underrated tree? Do you think, especially in the urban landscape, maybe? Uh, I mean, there's some pretty cool natives that we don't really see planted a lot. Um, Kentucky coffee tree. Is an awesome tree and as orange as well. Both of those have fruitless varieties, which I think the fruit is probably maybe why people don't plant them as much. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with both of those? Um, not the first one, but definitely the second. Yeah, Kentucky coffee tree has a big um, seed pod. I think the name comes from um, it was used to make coffee or something. Well. Like poor man's coffee kind of thing? But yeah, but at the same time, I think the pods are poisonous. So that was oh. not. Yeah, it's an interesting tree. It's got a really kind of delicate foliage and casts relatively light shade, but it's a pretty massive tree. It's really drought tolerant hmm. and grows, has a pretty broad range, I believe, across um, the eastern half of the country and really I think we're close to the western edge of where it grows natively hmm. okay yeah I'll have to look that one up I've never heard of that one before um also a big fan of burr oak um but Chris uh, likes burr oak <laughs> uh, they're amazing but I, I mean I can see why people don't plant them a lot because they well for one the big acorns but um also they just need so much space yeah, big trees. That I don't know. I think I think a lot of the ones that I would consider underutilized are trees that don't necessarily transplant very well, so you wouldn't really see them available commercially. But it's always nice to see them occurring naturally. Definitely. Cool. Okay. Um. So you said you have a Texas mountain laurel at your house. Um. Let's kind of talk a little bit more about, I guess, your garden there and how long you've been gardening there and what you kind of got going on okay um well so um i mentioned my great uncles that were foresters but my my grandfather also had a really big garden that was growing up that was kind of his thing he was always out working in the garden whenever we were there as kids and um i didn't really 
pick up gardening until after he had passed away um, a couple years after um, as an Austin and um, one of my good friends down there was a member of a community garden and kind of got me involved um, and and that I'd been interested in it but never really had a good place um, to garden at all so that's kind of where I got started but and once I went back to Oklahoma I was really pretty much without a yard for several years and um, we bought our house here about two years ago and um, got a really big yard and um, it's kind of split in half so we have you know some big shade trees in the front portion and it's great for our greyhound to run around it and then we've got a fence and a gate that goes to the back half and that's um, where our fruit trees are and the previous owner had planted a lot of fruit trees and um, that's where we dug our garden. It's about 15 by 10 feet. And um, I also um, keep honeybees and their hive is back in that area um, near the fruit trees and everything. Um, but I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought on that. No, that's okay. I actually forgot about the bees, too, and I was like, oh, yeah, the bees. Yeah, we didn't we didn't talk about them before, but... No, we didn't. Um, how are they doing with the cold? Have you... Um, and you have a length straw hive, right? I do. And, yeah. and so I, I haven't done a hive inspection in a while. It's been too cold. Um, back in November, I put a sugar block in there for them. Okay. Um, I went back there the other day when it was nice out, and they were flying in and out, so... Um, they're probably doing good. <laughs> so that's as much as I know. Um, hopefully we'll have another warm weekend here pretty soon, and I can um, open up and take a peek and see how they're doing on their honey stores and everything. But I really probably need to be trying to um, give them a protein block or something to try to prevent disease and whatnot. But, um, yeah, my hive management is pretty hands-off for the most part. I try to kind of go off the thought that they know what they're doing. <laughs> did you get a harvest last year? I did. Um, I had one super, and um, unfortunately, when I bought my frames, um, I could only get the plastic ones, and it took okay. them a while to draw out any comb on those. Mm. Um I don't know. I had plastic foundation on my original frames for my brood boxes, and the the frames themselves were wooden, but the foundation um, part was plastic. Okay. And they didn't have seem to have any issue using that. So I don't know if it was something to do with just how rainy it was, um, early summer up here, or is it took a while? I feel like for the nectar flow to get going, because it just wouldn't stop raining. <laughs> so right. Yeah. So maybe it was something to do with that. But I did end up having um, one super that was full, and then I harvested that in August, which was a pretty cool experience. But, yeah. Yeah, we, we got a lot from our hive this year, mostly because we have a top bar, um, and Chris had gone in to check it out and look for hive beetles and things like that, and he found that they had started doing some cross-combing. Um, so he took a few more few more bars than he wanted was planning to do but I mean he still left enough for them to to make it through winter but it's really fun to to get honey for yourself yeah I've been eating it um and almond butter and yogurt 
Oh, yes. Multiple mornings a week for breakfast. And I'm hoping that helps my allergies this year, but we'll see. But top part and beekeeping is really interesting. I kind of wish that I had known more about it or that there was someone that I could have um, learned about it with here. Um, I took a class through a local organization and they just, you know, what they taught was Lingstraw. So, so that's what I went with, but I like the top bar beekeeping is so much less invasive. You, you kind of look at a single frame rather than disturbing the whole hive whenever you have to get in. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, took a class that was top bar, um, at our local like plant nursery and Chris was, that was kind of what he was, had researched and was planning on doing, but you know, I took the class just to kind of make sure that's where we wanted to go. And, um, there's so many people that, you know, will build their own and we didn't, we didn't go that route, but, um, and it was really cool to go pick up the, the, you know, the hive, the initial hive and the queen and all that. It was really, it was really fun. Did your bees come in a package? Yeah. Package. Yeah. That was the word. I was like, what's the word? Yeah, they came in a package. Yeah, yeah. that was pretty surreal. I um, I ordered mine through local beekeeping supply store, and I remember going to pick them up. So I just had this little box of bees in the back of my Jeep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they're buzzing, and uh, that was um, that was pretty interesting. But they're so much fun to watch. I love the going out there. It's very serene. Just watching them flying and out. Yeah, I kind of wish we put our hive like kind of smack dab in the garden like well not smack dab it's kind of to the side a little bit but in the summer you don't want to go near it to weed because they're all buzzing and I wish we had planned it to go maybe a little bit off to the side so that way yeah (laughs) yeah but um it's definitely fun to have them pretty near nearby to watch them do you see them going to the plants in your garden a lot Oh yeah, for sure. And they buzz, they buzz me all the time. If I, even if I'm not like near the hive, they'll be around. Um, yeah, they're definitely pretty active. Yeah. See mine, um, they pretty much come out of the hive and go up and over the fruit trees and they typically kind of go to the Northeast. <laughs> oh. I, I um, have speculation that they might be visiting a um, botanical garden that's a couple miles away. Well, I'm not sure mm-hmm. the exact distance it might be kind of at the far end of how far they go, but in the fall though they do. I keep basil in the garden and I let it go to seed. They're just they're honeybees constantly all over the basil flowers. I assume they're from my colony, but I mean I'm sure they're from others as well. I hope at least some of them are from mine. But yeah, um, for the basil, if you can find African blue basil, it's supposed to be one of the best. Um, best for the bees the bees really like it um it's not you have to get it propagated by cutting though because it doesn't set seeds so um i don't know maybe i can take a cutting (laughs) some to you if you can't find any so So. um is it not an annual then or i guess for you maybe um i not not for me yeah it's it's an annual it'll die back in the if it freezes and i had ours was still actually up until probably two weeks ago when we actually got a real freeze um but it had been like hovering above 30 for the most part i mean above 32 for the most part so a lot of my tender plants weren't really getting bitten too bad but i think in this last freeze it got it got nipped so 
I'll just had to buy more plants. Uh, okay. And say you can take a cutting and bring it inside for the winter, I guess is how you I did, going. I did try that two years ago and then or three years ago. And um I was successful in rooting it. I just uh mm-hmm. wasn't very diligent about protecting it. <laughs> so um, so you said you dug your, um, I guess, your vegetable garden into the ground, right? Or is it raised beds? No, we dug it into the ground. Um, so that entailed digging out every last Bermuda grass root that I could find. Um, kind of a long and labor-intensive process, but that's uh, kind of how I started out gardening and how I like to do it. Um, and for the most part, my garden's been pretty weed-free. Um so we dig out the grass and um and then mix in compost and um and then just mulch it really deep right okay and uh so i guess it's kind of winter now do you have much growing or do you plan on getting started here in a few months and um, so oklahoma doesn't really have much of a winter growing season i guess there are probably gardeners that would argue with me about that but i haven't really um, tried my hand at it too much yet. Um, there are some cooler season plants that I had put in um, late summer, early fall that didn't really ever reach maturity, and they're still out there. <laughs> so you can see if they can make it through. Um, had some carrot seedlings and some beets. Um, I have an artichoke plant that's surprisingly still out there and still green. So we'll see if it makes it through February, I guess. Um, I'm hoping that it does, but I'm not really sure what to expect on that. Um, I have some collard greens that are still going. Um, I think for the most part, that's what's still alive out there. I really need to go out and start doing some cleanup. Um, I just ordered my seeds. I'm getting a little bit of a late start this year, but... Um, I got some seeds on order, and for Christmas, I got a new seed starting set up. Oh, yeah. Like a light rack and heat pad and all that stuff. So um, I'm going to try to start all my seeds this year rather than just doing some and buying transplants. And um, uh, it'll be be interesting to see how that goes. Do you keep your seed starting set up in the house or the garage or? So when I had done it before, um, I kept it in my studio. Oh, okay. I don't really have enough space <laughs> to do that anymore. Unfortunately, my art projects have kind of taken over everything. And um, so I'm going to try to do it in the garage. Um, I think that with having the, the heat mat um, and since it's, you know, protected from the wind, hopefully it'll um, keep them warm enough. But I don't and Do you have much experience with? Keeping them in a place like that. Chris Chris has set it up out in his man cave, which is a converted garage, and it has a a wall air conditioner heater. You know, not a not a you know installed in like a typical setup in the house, just the the wall unit. Um, so it doesn't stay totally warm enough in winter. But yeah, he's he's we've done seedlings out there before, and it's worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of let him handle that. Yeah. <laughs> it's more work than I want to do. <laughs> yeah, I've read that some people will um, turn their light on at night when it's the coldest and then have it shut off during the day. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have windows in my garage doors, though, so I think that could be, I don't know if that would mess up the... Right. 
circadian rhythm of the plants. <laughs> yeah. Would <laughs> be really confused. So um and so I guess one of the other things I'd like to talk about is your really cool indoor gardening that you have. You do a lot of well, I don't know about a lot, but you have several plants that you hang on your wall. Um, talk a little bit about those. Yeah. So um I've been really interested in doing a living wall for a long time. Um there's a really cool book um, vertical garden and I wish I had it here in front of me I'd tell you um who the author is but and um, there's an artist who does this these incredible living walls um all over the world and and with the you know irrigation systems and they're just immaculate it's really cool but anyway so that inspired me a number of years ago and um had kind of been researching ways to do that in my house and that are cost effective and not entailing a a really complex watering system and things like that and Mm -hmm. um, i came across these wall planters they're called um, woolly pocket and they have a website and i I ordered four of those um, they mount on the wall or there's like a, um, oh, they have a, basically a thing that they sit on um, that's attached to the wall hook on, I guess. Right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm losing my words there. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> that's all right. um, so I got four of those and I also had some mounted staghorn ferns that unfortunately the, the best wall um, with the brightest light in my house still does not really get that much light. And um, it's a knee spacing wall. And um, the wall itself is probably about 12 feet or so from the window. And it's a kind of off of a shaded patio. So um didn't really work that great for those plants. Unfortunately, they kind of had a slow decline. Mm. I did get another stackhorn fern that's in a hanging container that I've got hung like directly next to the window. So I'm going to see how that one does because I just love those plants so much. But yeah, me too. Hard to grow in my house. Um, but the so the plants that I have now in those um, wall containers are um, pothos, and um, I'm kind of thinking about getting some more containers and trying some ferns or. Um, other shade plants. I haven't really. I need to do a little more research on that, I guess, and figure out what I want to try. Yeah, I was trying to think of some low, low, low light plants. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was about to say peace lily, but they're kind of big, so uh, yeah, <laughs> that might not work. So, and do you have? Don't you? Now, didn't I see you have tillandsias and some, like, air plants, that kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, and so I have quite a few of those, and those are hung pretty much directly adjacent to windows. Okay. Um, I kind of had a, a string of failures with those until um, this past year I went to a garden festival, and there's a lady there that um, has been growing them for 15 years or something, and and she was selling pups off of her um, mature plants that she had and had some of the, the clumps that were, you know, as old as the amount of time that she's been doing it. So you're really neat to see as well. But um, in any case, I kind of learned that a lot of the information out there on how to care for plants is pretty <laughs> misguided. And, yes. they, you know, kind of tell you, oh, put it in this glass orb and then missed it, you know, every couple of days. And really that's, 
the worst thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, they really kind of just need to be dunked under a faucet and then shaken off and then left to dry um, for a couple of days. Um, so whenever you, you know, mist them in that orb, they're just sitting in that water and only part of the plant's getting wet. So it just like rots and then, you know, the rest of the plant dies and it just doesn't work out very well. So um, I've, the ones that I have now, I've kept alive for longer than I ever have any of the other ones that I've tried to grow. So we'll see. Good. Yeah. I feel like, good. you know, it's been almost a year, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. That's cool. Have any of them flowered? Um, I had one that was in the middle of flowering whenever I got it, and um, none of the other ones have flowered again. I did get some new ones recently. Um, I recently got to move into an office with windows at work. <laughs> so Oh, nice. And have them hang in the windows there, and um, two of those are actually in bloom right now. So I do have some that are in bloom, but not, not the ones that I've been growing for a while. Okay, good. Cool. Yeah, I really, I really like Talanzias. I kind of miss having bromeliads mm-hmm. around. Um, just don't want too many tropicals because I don't want to have to bring them all inside. So, <laughs> but I, I like that you have plants at your office because Chris has a ton of plants and I'm starting to get a ton of plants. But I only get <laughs> afternoon, I only get afternoon sun, so um, I can't have anything that needs a lot of light. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, mine's on a west-facing um, wall, and it's um, basically the entire west wall of the room is um, windows from about four and a half feet up. Um, oh, nice. So it's, I don't know, it kind of gets cold in there um, this time of year. Yeah, right. I've I've heard from the previous tenant that it'll be pretty warm um, this summer, so I'm probably going to have to... Um, I guess keep the blinds mm-hmm. a little bit so I don't burn everything up. We'll see. I've got a, um, also have a fiddly fig tree mm-hmm. there and some jade plants and trying to propagate my pencil cactus to grow one in there. So he's looking a little shriveled right now, but I'm hoping I'll take root soon. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, they're pretty easy to propagate. I've propagated them before. Yeah. I use um, reading hormone on it, and that's the first time that I've used that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of. I guess it's a waiting game. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I am glad we finally got to talk, and we didn't have audio problems. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, can you go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you if they want to learn a little bit more about um, what you do? Um, sure. So um, I have a, a website, and the address is www.leemartinart.com, um, Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H, and um, I do have a blog there that I have not been regularly posting on um, because I've been focusing on art making and um, some current projects. I have a, a show in, in July that I'm working on a body of work for right now, but um, in any case, my um, previous work is all um, all on that website as well, and um, in social media, my name is pretty much across the board, um, just Vermiliad, and that's spelled with my name spelling, so it's B-R-O-M-E-L-E-I-G-H-A-D. Cool. All right. Great. 
And again, thanks for coming on and sharing your, your wisdom and interesting stories. And um, if anybody has any questions, feel free to leave a comment on the Garden Path Podcast blog. And um, you can also leave a comment on um, iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you guys later. So after Lee and I uh, stopped recording, I we were talking for a few minutes, and I asked her a question about an interesting uh, morphology on a pine tree that Chris and I had seen before. So I thought it would be interesting to attach that onto the end here um, as a way to close out. So have a listen. Um, I did have a question, and I was going to ask it, but then I got distracted. Um, so... Occasionally I see it in Texas, but in Florida I've seen it several times. Pine trees that seem to grow like on a certain limb, like really bushy. Like what's that about? Um, that is witch's broom. Um, and that's a result from an insect test. I wanted to say it's not aphids. I don't know what is that. I don't see it a whole lot, so I can't think on the top of my head. Let me... Hang on just a sec. Okay. Because I've, I've heard witches room for on some roses, but I've never heard it for that. Uh, and I think it's an adaptive growth that's a result um, from a... From an infection uh, or something? From a pest. It's like a response and um, Yeah, disease or deformity in a wooded plant where the natural structure of the plant has changed... And, um, no. Yeah, I guess there are a lot of different organisms that can cause it. Okay. Huh. Yeah, I just remember seeing it several times in Florida and I was like, what's up with that? And, you know, we thought it was kind of like funny, but, you know, I didn't know what it was about. So, 